Welcome to the Jesus in the Real World podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Mazza. These studies are designed to bring the teachings of the Bible to a place where scriptural concepts turn into real world thinking in practical ways to live out our lives in step with the Holy Spirit, giving all our praise to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us. Currently, we're going through a series called Gospel, Meeting the Jesus You Think You Know. This is a chronological journey through all four Gospels, taking a step-by-step walk through the entire life of Jesus exactly when it happens. Come and get to know Him better than you ever did before. Think you know our Lord? Come and see. Run with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to be reading today verses 1 through 9. John chapter 5, starting at verse 1, it says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now there there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which they were afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he and knew that he had already been there for a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no, one, no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, and picked up his pallet and began to walk. That's where we're in our scripture today. So our Lord continues to make his way through the cities of Israel. His focus at first seems to be primarily person-to-person, right? One-on-one evangelism with certain individuals. We read about Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the nobleman with the sixth son. Now he arrives in Jerusalem at a place called the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was a gate in the north part of Jerusalem's wall just west of its northeast corner. They call it this because this is where the sheep that are bred and selected for the daily sacrifices are brought in. In this same spot, there are five porticos, that is, archways that lead into the temple. And there, there was a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda. Some years might say Bethsaida, maybe a different variation, but it basically means house of mercy, which I find a bit ironic. And this place, by the way, has been found and verified through archaeology. Go ahead, John. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, how many gates in Jerusalem there are. Four or uh, one on each? I, I really don't know. Yes, and a new one, yes. Now, John informs us that there lay a multitude of people who were sick, blind, lame, and withered there. And it seems that there was quite a community of individuals that, crown, that congregated there for decades. Why? Because of a local superstition. And what was that superstition? Well, we are told, and some say that it was the Apostle John, and others say it was perhaps a scribe adding this description or explanation many years later, 
that an angel of the Lord would come down at certain seasons into the pool and stir up the water. Whoever was able to jump in first right at the stirring up of the water was made well from whatever disease in which they had or were afflicted with. Now, most commentators are very quick to point out that these two verses in here, the part that says waiting for the moving of the waters, and in verse 4 where it says that the angel of the Lord comes down in certain seasons and all that, they're not found in the original texts of the Gospel of John, but that they must have been added later, ascribed perhaps a well-meaning editorial comment, perhaps simply to explain why people came and congregated there. Now, the, congre the conventional wisdom being, John wouldn't have believed or communicated this superstitious wives' tale and thus propagating a false belief. Now, while I can accept the fact that there might have been uh, some scribe who added this later and understand why they would feel they need to justify John saying this, that um, uh, to justify it in the gospel account, I personally believe it's supposed to be here or God would not have allowed it to remain forever in his word. Besides that, I believe that by trying to explain away these verses, we diminish the significance and the glory and purpose of why Jesus showed up here and what he did for this man in the first place. I see these verses in a couple different ways. First of all, Jews were a very superstitious lot. Okay? They could fall into idolatry at the drop of a hat. And we today are no different, unfortunately. They would worship almost anything from trees and rocks. Let's go to Jeremiah real quick, chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 26 to 28. Listen to this. It says, make sure I'm in the right place. It says, As a thief is shamed when he is discovered, so is the house of Israel shamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You're my father, and to a stone, You gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their and not their face, but in that time of their trouble they will say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. <laughs> so in other words, you have as many gods as you do cities. Right, right. So they're willing to worship just about anything. Uh, go, go to Jeremiah 44. <coughs> Jeremiah 44, verses 15 through 19. Listen to this. Then all the men who were aware of their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by, as a large assembly, including the people who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah, saying, as for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths, 
by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, and we were well off and saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by sword and famine. And, said the woman, when we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and were pouring out drink offerings to her, it was, it was without our husbands that we made her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out our drink offerings to her. Or what she's saying is, was it without our husbands? No, they were there. They knew. They saw. So I could go on and on and on, right? A golden calf in Exodus 32, right? They actually were going, they would have worshipped Moses if Satan had been able to get a hold of, of, of Moses' body. In Jude 9, we're told that the archangel Michael did not allow access uh, to Moses' body, Satan access, because he would have taken it and, for, and made Israel worship it. And then later on, the brazen serpent he used to save him in numbers. Later on, they were worshiping that as well as an idol. And I could list you a hundred more, but I want to read you one more in Isaiah chapter 2. Real quick, I think it's pretty funny that they're making cakes in her image. <laughs> yes. I guess that's where um, finding uh, Mary in toast comes from, or Jesus in toast. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that, that, had, that scripture has been used in the past as an argument against worshiping Mary, right, uh, as the queen of heaven. Um, that wasn't originally the intention of that passage, but, it, it, you know, it is a, it, it, sometimes it is appropriate depending on who you're talking to. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6 says, You have abandoned... For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has been filled with silver and gold. There is no land to their treasure. Uh, their land has also been filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. Right? And so on and on it goes how they will literally worship just about anything. So I find this group to be a very superstitious lot, right? So even if uh, John would believe that, I wouldn't blame him at that particular point, right? John by nature was a very spiritual person and he was a type of mystic. Now mystic carries a lot of baggage with that word, but it basically just means that he was a spiritually, supernaturally sensitive individual. And I believe that's why he was chosen to write the book of Revelation. Right, he, he was more attuned and ready to believe God. Right, uh, it doesn't come easy for many of us faith. Right, like doubting Thomas, um, but we know people that faith does come very easily for them. You know, my faith is hard fought. I had questions that needed to be answered. I was skeptical. My wife had, doesn't have that problem. She believes God first, and then lets everything else sort itself out. Right, I go from the other direction most of the time. So there are people like that, sensitive, uh, sensitive and aware and attuned to the spiritual aspect of things. And John could have been very easily a superstitious Jew. In the beginning, there were many things that Jesus had to teach the apostles and correct their thinking about, didn't he? Uh, one of the things that God seems to have to do with us today as well, before Jesus, we tended to be superstitious or wrong in our spiritual beliefs. And unfortunately, too many Christians today 
base their faith on superstitious views of the Bible as opposed to allowing the Bible to form and structure our views. For instance, too many Christians allow their views on spiritual warfare to be formed by the Bible theologians in Hollywood. Right? The countless movies themed on Satan, fallen angels, and demonic activity. Too many approach spiritual warfare with nothing more than amulets and good luck charms. Whether it's pleading the blood, or crosses, or holy water, or deliverance ministries who try to remove demons from actual believing Christians. Many allow their views on the world and the end times based also on superstitious views. Uh, so many who have tried to predict the future and use the Bible like a crystal ball to try to predict the end times. Besides that, the apostles believed many superstitions in those days as well, even reincarnation. Listen to this scripture. It says, Now as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind? This man or his parents? <coughs> um, how can you commit a sin before you're born so that you can be born blind? Unless you believe in some kind of reincarnation, right? They thought Elijah would come back as another person. They talked about John being, right? John the Baptist as well. So they had a mistaken belief by that time about the afterlife. One of the best parts of being a believer and studying the Bible is that it does eliminate so much nonsense, false beliefs, superstitious mumbo-jumbo, trash, junk, you name it. Stuff that we're bombarded with 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? But only if you choose to accept the truth of the Word of God. If you, if you read the Bible and allow the Bible to tell you what to believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about angels or demons, about heaven and hell, about all those things, then you are going to walk around with a different perspective than the rest of the world. Because they literally make it up as they go along. Right? They make it up as they go along. The second thing here is that the Apostle John could have just been simply stating that's just the way it was those days. That's just what everybody believed. Right? There are many examples in the Bible of writers in the scriptures who wrote and communicated things as the reality of the time that weren't necessarily endorsed by God. Polygamy. Slavery. Right? That's not anything God condoned, but it's mentioned as a matter of fact in the scriptures. The book of Ecclesiastes, people thought that Ecclesiastes should not be in the Bible. Because here is Solomon, you know, agonizing, philosophizing over his life, and saying a lot of things that weren't exactly biblical at first, even though the book ends well, doesn't it? He says, ultimately, when it's all said and done, there's one shepherd, right, and one truth, and... But fearing God and obeying His commandments is the best thing. But before that, he agonized and struggled, as many of us do in our lives, with philosophy, with reality of life, with our place in the world, all those things, right? But not necessarily endorsed by God, simply because it says it in the Scriptures. So here, we have a common superstition at the time, where it was believed that an angel, supposedly from God, would come down and stir the waters, and whoever can jump in it first gets to be healed. By the way, they would have to say, wouldn't they, that it had to be an angel of the Lord. 
Like so many today who believe in the occult and in magic, they also always want to believe that it can only come from good spirits, never considering the source could be satanic or demonic, especially when it comes to healing sickness. Unfortunately, apart from the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, humanity has absolutely no mechanism whatsoever to be able to figure out or discern whether the spiritual experiences they're, they're having come from God or come from Satan. They're literally at the mercy of whatever they call upon out in the dark that answers up to them. They have no mechanism of figuring it out. To them, it's as easy as, well, it healed me. It's nice to me. It speaks good things to me. It told me the truth about my life. That's all people need nowadays to believe something. it's a good spirit. And you know, they don't realize the devil doesn't come all the time like some kind of frothing at the mouth, roaring beast, ugly looking thing you see on TV. Uh, Paul says he comes as a minister of light, as an angel. The major religions of the world, uh, Islam, some of, most of most of the uh, non-Christian cults in the, uh, on the, in this world, but Mormonism uh, started with the revelation from an angel, not some you know monstrous-looking beast or demon. That's not the way it works. But just like so many superstitions and false beliefs today, they tend to lead to selfishness, self-centeredness, anxiety, fear, negativity, helplessness. Imagine what it must have been like in that day to be that sick man in that place. There you sit, crippled, lame, diseased, helpless. You're probably riddled with anxiety since there's no real way to figure out when this alleged angel will return and stir up the waters. So I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be getting a lot of sleep. Right? What if you fall asleep and he stirs the waters while you're asleep? Can you go get something to eat? How long are you going to hold your pee? The angel could come at any time. I would be gone every 20 minutes on the dot. right? And you're going to miss it because of a bowel movement. Now, can you imagine the anxiety of sitting there? Right? Of sitting there for 38 years waiting for the waters to stir. Right? I don't know about you, but it feels like a frog in the blender situation to me. And no one to help you, right? Now, this is, I believe, a great picture of people who are absolutely stuck in the same condition and situation due to their own sins. Their own mistakes and their faults and flaws and errors of their own lives. Always looking for that elusive angel. Happiness, joy, peace, safety. All in the wrong places. Someone, something, anything to come to the rescue. John. It seemed like the ones that got in there first were pretty selfish. Well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And can you blame them, really, when you think about it? Yeah. Right? Um, they're looking for anybody to come to their rescue, to stir up the waters of their lives, and make them well, but it never comes. Eventually, it does take over your entire life. You sit there in your own filth with no one to help you because now it's every man for himself. Every time you try to get to the water, someone just runs right past you and gets in there first. 
This is exactly what the man said to Jesus, didn't he? Sir, I have no man, no one, to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another one steps in before me. Well, worldly speaking, who in their right mind would? If, you're, if he's sitting there crippled and you're sitting here blind, why would you let grab somebody else and throw them in when you need to get in there first? Right? Every single person there is there for the very same reason you are. Who would possibly give up their own life and well-being to help someone else get the healing that they have been desperately longing for that entire time? I call this the pool of dysfunctional hope. <laughs> right? One hope for help with no hope whatsoever of getting help with that one hope. It's a vicious circle and so many people live that circle today. And guess what? It is the perfect picture of the human and spiritual condition of those then, of the nation of Israel, and of the world today. Thoughts or comments? So, every last one of us starts out lost, don't we? On our own. Every person for themselves. Anxious, desperate, hopeless, sitting in our own filth and sin. Waiting for someone or something, anybody, to stir us up and to heal us of all our sicknesses. But they are so blind to the truth of Jesus. So what does the God of the Bible do? Okay, What humanity cannot possibly do for themselves. All the sick, lame, and broken people at this pool of dysfunctional hope can't go to Jesus. So our beloved and blessed Savior comes to us. Amen? That is amazing. That is amazing. Who but Jesus would do this for us? Go with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Starting at verse 6, Paul tells us exactly that. And he's speaking to the Jewish people of those days, the believers of those days. Listen to what it says. He says, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be, shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Right? So here we were helpless. We were hopeless. And worse than that, we were hostile enemies of God. And in that time, it says, Jesus died for us. Right? We are told by John... 
that Jesus singles this guy out and he sees him lying there and that he knew that he'd been in that condition for a long time. Did you see that? Jesus saw him. That excited me for some reason, right? While every single person there was so imprisoned in their own minds and hearts, completely overwhelmed with their own needs and wants, that they become oblivious and inevitably hardened of heart to anyone else's pain or situation but their own, while none of the healthy people came around to help them out. I mean, who has the time to sit around with sick people waiting for some elusive angel to show up so they can dump them in the pool? I don't, right? All that while the religious and spiritual leadership has absolutely nothing to offer them either by way of hope. Because unfortunately, their beliefs, okay, have become just as useless and superstitious as these people's were. Right? Therefore, they're just as spiritually and apparently physically disabled, crippled, lame, and sick as the people were in the pool. Think about that for a moment. Even though the people around them were healthy, even though the religious leadership and spiritual leadership was not physically ill, they still were just as incapable of helping these guys out, much less themselves, as the people that were actually disabled and sick and ill. So it's not just a physical illness that slows you down and stumps you. Right? It's not just that that does it. it. Mentally, we can be just as helpless, just as disabled, can't we? Absolutely. While the entire world is wrapped up, cocooned, and immersed in their own self-constructed, self-centered, selfish realities, when they could not see anything but themselves, guess what? Jesus saw him. Right? I can't imagine what that must have felt like, except for the fact that I know how it felt like the day Jesus saw me. Do you remember the day Jesus saw you, like really saw you, and then you responded? I mean, there's no day like it. It was right. It's glorious. You know, you praise God. You praise the Father and the Son. He sees us all, and that deserves an hallelujah and an amen right there. Jesus sees us all. No, not as not for who he was at that point. No, because later on we read that he went over. Uh, they they saw him walking with his pallet, right? Because no good deed goes unpunished. So the Jews, uh, the religious leaders, saw him walking with that pallet, and they're yelling at him for carrying his pallet on the Sabbath day. And when they asked him who healed him, they at first he did not know. But this isn't the only time he encountered Jesus, right? So we'll talk a little bit about that. And you have to love the words of our Lord to the sick man, right? What does he say to the guy? Do you wish to get well? Even reading this right then and there, I don't know about you, but I got this cosmic infusion of sarcasm. Right? And I wanted to respond for this guy. You know? The words that would have come out of my mouth? (laughs) Yes. 
Yes, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a wrong question. No, no. My attitude is wrong. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> but it's that quick, right? You. He asked them, "Do you wish to get well?" But you know, sick or not, at that moment, the next word out of my mouth would have not been good. Right. <laughs> I've been sitting here on a dirty bed mat in my own filth, waiting 38 years for someone to help me get into the pool at the exact moment so that I can get healed. Finally, someone finally steps over to me and he speaks to me. And what do they say? <laughs> do you wish to get well? Well, the responses are endless, right? And for me, none of them would have been good. How about you, my reaction would have been exactly like Yes, yes, most of us probably would have, right? Really? You know, Mr. Obvious? I mean, and don't get me started. Don't, I said I wouldn't say it. I don't want to say it. You can say, yeah, duh. Yeah, like a universal duh, right? A duh that like reverberates through the centuries. But interestingly enough, right, this man doesn't miss a beat. He no sarcasm, no remark or irritation or even a reproach. Like, really? What do you think I'm doing here? None of that. <laughs> he just goes on to explain to Jesus his situation. Why do you think that is? Don't be reading ahead, but think about it for a moment. Why do you think he just... He didn't react the way we would have normally probably reacted, but just went on to respond. How many did Jesus we have to acknowledge our problem? Okay. And he was acknowledged. Okay, that's, that's... I don't think that until we do, can we really find it. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Yes, it's a that's one of the strongest spiritual principles, right, is that we have to recognize where we're at before we can move on. John? Maybe you thought Jesus well, yeah, yeah. Maybe he just thought, you know what? Let's just cut to the chase. Get me, throw me in the pool, and we'll be fine. Well, if it's been sarcastic to Jesus, Jesus said, "Good Maybe, yeah. True. Why ruin it with sarcasm when you actually have somebody that actually cares enough about doing it, right? Um, do you know what that says to me? This says to me that somehow this man must have felt like he deserved what he was getting. That's what it tells me. It, it's as if guilt, shame, pain, regret, sorrow, his conscience compelled this man to a self-imposed sentence of hoping against hope for 38 years. Think about it for a moment. This has been a failed attempt for almost 40 years. Why stay there? Why stay there? Well, he says he tried he says he still tries to make it, right? He says, you know, when I when I go toward it, someone just runs right past me. So he can move, but not fast enough, apparently, right? He's, if I make it to the pool, I get healed okay. If not, oh well, that's okay too, obviously, because he just stayed there. I'll just sit here and watch everyone else. As it turns out, and, and Laura, you alluded to this, there are so many people in the world today that live the same way. Crippled, helpless because of their sin, their guilt, their shame, their pain, their regrets and sorrow, their consciousness 
their conscience condemning them daily. That, that they are resigned just to sit and wait, clinging to one dysfunctional hope that there might be something, someone, anyone out there that will come and stir up their lives and make them well. But they're not able to do it for themselves, and there's no one else around willing to help them into the pool of healing and forgiveness. Now, you might ask me and say, Gil, how can you possibly know this about this guy? Right? How would I know that? Right? I'm saying he, part of the reason he's there is because he feels he deserves it. The other reasons were good too, right? He, he acknowledges the sin, you know, all these other things. But I know it based on something that Jesus said to him later on. In John 5.14, it says, afterwards, Jesus what? Found him. He wasn't, you know, he, went, he just went through this little rigmarole, which we're going to read about next week, with the Jewish authorities about why he's, got, he's walking around with his bed mat on the Sabbath. They asked him who, who healed him. He didn't know. Uh, but he was good to go, right? He's healed. He's done. He can move on with his life. But our Lord seeks him out one more time. Norm. I just want to... Oh, how could I let somebody of your sickness? Well, I'm not saying he never did eat. I'm just saying it would be pretty nerve-wracking nerve to have to take off or find some food or get food brought to him, yeah. you know, the whole time. Yeah. Right, because I mean, you're waiting for that elusive angel to come stir the waters. So it's to me, I'd be like nervous the whole time. What if I leave, or what if I, whatever happens? So I'm not. I'm sure he did eat and he did go to the bathroom and all those things. I'm just saying that if he did, he basically had this sacrifice missing out his chance, right, making it harder for him. But Jesus finds him again because it's not enough for him to be feel, uh, healed physically, is it? No, it's not enough for it to be healed, uh, healed physically. He finds them in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. That is huge. Yeah, that is, yeah. Talk to me. This whole story is about this man getting saved through Jesus' healing power so that he can witness and evangelize, basically. Okay. But for Jesus to throw that in impacts everybody in this room. We sin again, something worse might happen to us. That's the way we can take it if we don't read the whole Bible in its context. Of course. But yeah. that is that is just um, that's that's uh, just profound. It is very powerful and profound, right? Because, uh, and I, I want to speak a little bit more about that, but. What does the man do after that? Jesus says, don't sin anymore so nothing worse happens to you. And that's why I believe that's the reason why he's there. Something he did, something that happened in his life, some decision he made got him to that point. Right? Not because, and I'm going to say this later, not because I believe that bad things happen to bad people. Just because he was a sinner and he suffered because of sin. But I do believe it was as a result of something he did. And that happens to a lot of people, right? You you choose to drink and drive, you kill somebody on the way. No matter how much forgiveness you get, you're gonna live with that, you're gonna live burdened by that the rest of your life. An accident of some sort. An accident of some sort. Something, right? Um, or he 
caught a venereal disease that you know that made him crippled blind or deaf like syphilis can destroy you right can literally make you whatever so it's like oh it could have been anything but the reason why I believe that Jesus telling him that indicates that this man was there due to something he did and therefore he feels like he deserves what he got was because there was another time that Jesus said the same thing to somebody else right why would he say this to him okay uh, remember the woman caught in adultery right? that's another time when the Lord says to him, right he straightens up and Jesus says to her woman where are those who accuse you he, she says they're all gone Lord she says there's nobody here and he said I do not condemn you either go from now on sin no more she was there as a result of what <coughs> of her sin whether it was fair or not we you know we discussed that we debate that that's whatever but she was there because she was caught in adultery whether she was dragged into it or it was used for evil purposes it doesn't matter so that's why I think I tend to believe that this man was there for as a result of something that happened to him by him because of him right something he did or said or that brought it on to him that brought it on um, Somehow, this sick man's sins had led to the situation he was in and uh, in that condition he was in for 38 years. Now, again, Terry, not some superstitious notion that bad things happen to bad people, but the reality, the reality that our sins have dire consequences and that we suffer, we struggle, we agonize with our own sins, with our own pain, our shames, our regrets sometimes so long that we do become disabled by them until the day that Jesus comes along amen, amen. without fancy words or fanfare and regardless of what anyone else thought or what the consequences might be he says to the man get up Pick up your pallet or your bed mat and walk. That's it. And what happens? The man is completely healed. And I mean completely. Not rehab, not physical therapy, not working the kinks out of his muscles because of the atrophy. He gets up immediately. Okay? He becomes well, he picks up his stuff. And begins to walk. That deserves an hallelujah and an amen. I mean, fantastic. Amazing. Amazing. What does the Lord mean when he says, get up? Right? We rise when our Lord speaks, don't we? It's the Holy Spirit who prompts us, who, uh, you know, encourages, motivates us, gets us to move, to rise, to be well, to all those things. We rise when our Lord speaks. The other part of this that I found very intriguing and also very deep and profound was pick up. Pick up your palate. Why? I don't know about you, but besides being sarcastic, I'd left my trash right there. <laughs> but... Yes. Now see that? Oh, that's so beautiful right there. See, let me, let me, yeah. I, I'm glad she brought it up because I want to spell this out real carefully. Jesus didn't do anything that was hidden or in a corner, and everything was for a purpose. 
So do you think it caught him by surprise that this man would be walking around with this bed mat and that it would get the attention of the Jewish leadership in that day? He wasn't surprised at all. In fact, he was looking forward to it. Right? He was looking forward to it. There was no law or injunction in the entire Bible that says you can't, you can't walk around with your bed mat on the Sabbath. It was a selfish, made-up, Thing, superstitious thing they made up to impose upon the people, right? Their rule and regulation. Yet Jesus was about to use it to begin to make his case against Israel, right? And build up his evidence so that it would come to that strong conclusion that we're going to get to as we come next week. But there's the thing right there, right? Um, to me, when the Lord says pick up, we do pick up our baggage because now we carry our baggage. It doesn't carry us. I'll let you take that in for a moment. Right? It's, the pallet's not holding us. And the, we're carrying the baggage. The baggage is not carrying us. He's not controlled. His life is not defined by that bed mat anymore, is it? And any place he's forced to lay because he can't move, he's no longer confined by it. Now that prison, he's carrying it around like nothing now. But the Lord makes him pick it up. Go ahead, Barbara. Isn't that something like that? His carrying his bed mat was like his testimony. And so when we, maybe that's like for us to remember where we came from. Oh. You know, to remember our testimony and to be willing to share it. Oh, that's so beautiful. Because so many Christians believe that once the Lord saves you, you, everything it, it just gets thrown away. The trash gets thrown away. The baggage is thrown away. What if we're supposed to redeem that baggage, carry it ourselves, and use it as a witness to the entire world and say, look, I come with baggage too. This is what the Lord saved me from. And he can save you too. Right? So sometimes when we think the Lord isn't taking something away that he should take away, perhaps he's saying, how about using it for my purposes now and I may not he may not get rid of all of it he may not you know make it all disappear and many times he doesn't I still carry all the baggage I had before I was a Christian but I'm happy to carry it now I'm okay with it because he's the one carrying it for me right uh, it's like uh, I remember an episode of Star Trek and I might have told you guys many times before Right? There was a real quick, it was a prophet running around and he said, I can take away all your pain. And what literally what he would do is he'd make everybody forget their past. And so now they're in the present. They don't remember their past. No pains, no aches, no hurts, no sins, no failures. And they're all happy and go lucky and everything they want. Well, they come around to Captain Kirk, right? And they're like, and he's like, I can take away your pain. And he goes, why would I let you? That pain made me the starship captain I am now. And he was the best. If I got Picard fans, I don't care. Kirk was the better captain. But you see what I mean? And that was a, I never forgot that life lesson because what it, it was all those foibles in his life, that baggage that made him that great starship captain he was. And if I have any good redeeming quality today, it's because I, almost, I too, that, not, that junk that I wish I had never gone through and I wish I'd never put my family through or my children through, now makes me the guy I am today and that's who I want to be. I don't want to be that guy, right? 
So while the world is what would love for someone to come and stir the waters of their soul and get rid of all that ugliness and they never have to see it or think about it or worry about it again, well then, then what? Who are you now? Just some happy, you know, soul running around? No, God wants to give purpose and meaning to you for what you happen. And He wants to redeem all that ugliness. He's the only one that can restore what the locusts have destroyed. Right? And so here, he says, you get up immediately. Pick up your stuff. Don't leave your trash around here, right? And he says, walk. Right? For Now, maybe that can't get the impact of it because you haven't been hobbled for 38 years. But, could you imagine what it like felt like, right? You know, I know, you know, again, I've been like... <laughs> Everywhere I went, right, I've been like, I strut, I walk, you know, I you know, do this thing like a peak, I'd be everything, right? But he says, walk, move, go, and it's like, oh, great, right? We get up, we rise when our Lord speaks, we pick up, we take our baggage with, it, with us because now we carry it, it does not carry us. And we walk with the one who stirred our spirits and healed us completely. John. You know, we, 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 we don't know any more than we know why he picks some people for... Well, he knows it all. Yes, yes, yes. But you know what? He singled him out out of that group, right? And he's going to go on to use this man's, uh, what happened to him, for his purpose. All right? So next week, we're going to see that no good deed goes unpunished. And uh, that will be uh, to be continued. Any final thoughts or comments as, uh, before I close you out today? And you just imagine what the other people laying around the pool are thinking. Yes. And here's another thing, by the way, Dave. I find it beautiful that he didn't go back and say one, because Jesus found him again, right? Well, he goes back. Believe it or not, next week we're going to look that he goes back and tells them, the pool, the angel saved my life. Is that what he said? No. At first he didn't know who saved them. Jesus finds him again, says, go and sin no more. He goes back to the same people and he says, uh, Jesus saved me. Right? That's the beauty of it. No superstitious nonsense, no mumbo-jumbo, just Jesus. Amen? Well, this wasn't, there was an incident like that, but this wasn't it. Next week, we'll talk about the whole reaction of the, of, of the Pharisees and scribes next week, okay? Yeah, what did you suffer? You came, went back there and said, I'm here to help you people. Here I am. I mean, that would be beautiful, right? If he went back. That would be awesome if he went back and started helping some of those guys, right? But he's not going to tell them about the pool. He's not going to go help them get in the pool, is he? He's going to go help them find Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your glory and grace, especially, Father, that you saw us. When we were lost in the crowd, Lord, when we were lost in our own sins, when we were hobbled by our own weaknesses, Father, you found us and you healed us, Lord, and we praise and thank you for that. We appreciate your word, Father, and everything that's in it. And we, Lord, also continue to lift up all those around us that are sick and infirm, Lord, for their healing as well. Thank you for your marvelous word. Thank you for seeing us, saving us, Lord, and allowing us also to rise when you call us, 
to pick up our baggage, Lord, because we're, it's no longer carrying us, we're carrying it. And Lord, to continue to walk your footsteps, to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We again love and praise you for your word and for this message. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, saints. Give me a prayer for our nation. Oh, amen. Amen. Yes. Wife, do you have um, the roster with Joyce's address? Joyce, Joyce? Mm-hmm. <laughs>